Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. A few weeks ago, an article was published in the Washington Post entitled, Will the Pandemic Make Us Nicer People? Probably not. The article then went on to cite lessons from history and insights from modern psychology to argue that we will in all likelihood not emerge from this pandemic transformed into a more loving, altruistic society. What I appreciated about the article was the utter lack of sentimentality and its willingness to grapple with the truth about human nature. Because at the moment, I'm reading Fyodor Dostoevsky's book entitled Notes from the Underground, a work of fiction he wrote to respond to the dominant philosophy of 19th century Russia which is called meliorism. And the basic tenet of meliorism is that if you and I could just let human nature unfold without interference, if we could learn to step aside and get out of the way, that over time this would naturally result in a gradual improvement in both people and society that would culminate in perfection or as the modern self-help movement has put it, every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better and better. But Dostoevsky wanted to critique this worldview, which he did in a clever way by creating the first anti-hero in modern literature, who on the first page of the book offers this shocking introduction. I am a sick man, I am a spiteful man, I am an unpleasant man, I think my liver is diseased, but I don't know beans about my disease, I don't treat it, and I never have. And thus begins his commentary on people who assume that in every way they are naturally improving, getting better and better, for Dostoevsky, They don't know about their disease, and thus they can't treat it. Now, on the surface, who could seem more different from Dostoevsky's anti-hero than Nicodemus in today's gospel? I mean, right? He is a respected teacher of Israel, and we can assume that Nicodemus follows the law to the T. But obviously, from Jesus' perspective, there is something off, something incomplete about how Nicodemus approaches his relationship with God. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus that to see the kingdom, he must be born from above, or to use a different translation of the Greek, born again. And I would posit that what makes Dostoevsky's character and Nicodemus so very similar is that both rely on what the Bible calls the flesh, 
with respect to how they approach their life, which you may have noticed is a prominent theme in today's reading from both Romans and John. We are debtors, Paul writes, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then in John, what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? He says, what is born of the flesh is flesh. Now, the Greek word sarx, which is translated into English as flesh, it is not referring to something inherently bad or dirty. But the word flesh does refer to something limited and easily corrupted by sin. Because at the end of the day, the flesh is really just basic human biology. It is the natural mammalian and reptilian instincts that we all share. And in some people, the flesh can manifest as a pretty debased and selfish life, as in the case of Dostoevsky's anti-hero. But in other people, like Nicodemus... And if I'm going to tell the truth, like your preacher today, the flesh can manifest as an instinct to please, or an instinct to conform, or an instinct to achieve at all costs, or an instinct to improve and get better all on one's own, thinking my own resources can carry me. And we see this in Luke's parable of the prodigal son. The younger brother was in the former category, and the older brother was in the latter, but neither one, at least at the beginning of the parable, understood what it meant to be a son, what it meant to be an heir in his father's house, Neither son actually understood his status or the depth of the father's love. And the whole point of today's readings, both from Romans and John, with all this talk of being led by the Spirit of God or being born from above, is that God's chief desire is for us to know our status as children, and the depth of our Father's love. It is not primarily to help us fine-tune and regulate our basic biological drives. It's not to help us live well in accordance with the flesh, but rather God's chief desire is to help us understand what it means to be a son, to be a daughter, to be an heir of God, and a joint heir with Christ. Now, in the Episcopal Church, today is Trinity Sunday. And if you are unfamiliar with the doctrine of the Trinity, it's basically our belief that God is one and that three divine persons constitute this oneness by virtue of the eternal, uncreated love they share meaning that within the Godhead there is a constant gathering in of love and a constant sending forth, and this movement of love we say is one and eternal and holy and personal, and above all else, the ground of all existence 
which includes your life. And at the end of the day, what makes Nicodemus and Dostoevsky's character so similar is that neither one understands this, and that both are violently clutching, albeit in very different ways, to their static, dry, separate sense of who they imagine themselves to be apart from God. And the invitation, not just to them, but also to us, the invitation is to be reborn. The invitation is to come to life in a new way as we learn to lose the life we just assume that God wants us to enhance and to get lost in this eternal dance of love that we call the Trinity. Now, I'm going to be the first one to acknowledge that what I just said there is pretty vague and that this is necessary given the subject matter of the day. Because the truth is, the Trinity is not like mathematics or woodwork or playing an instrument or anything else that the human mind can master or understand. In fact, Martin Luther once said that to deny the Trinity endangers our salvation, but that to attempt to comprehend the Trinity will endanger our sanity. And so for the rest of my sermon this morning, my goal is not to speak a word to the left hemisphere of your brain, which loves to comprehend and that delights in the mastery of abstract ideas, but instead, I want my words to speak to your soul. Because I believe that there is a part of each one of us that knows God as Trinity and that desires to get lost in this divine love that we believe is at the heart of all reality. And so I want you to think about a moment recently when love or creativity or wonder drew you out of yourself, if only for a second. And as many of you know, this can bubble up quite unexpectedly at times. Perhaps in a quiet moment, whenever you ponder that age-old philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing? Or maybe whenever we're watching our child play or our grandchild play and tears of love just bubble up seemingly out of nowhere. Or maybe whenever we think of death our own death or the death of someone we love, and there is something inside us that just rebels because we know that death is not the end. It can happen at a wedding when the joyful masses dance and smile and laugh together. It can happen when we're alone in nature and a deep ecstasy takes over. And I've been told it can even happen in church. But we've all had those moments, even if they're brief, when something from beyond draws us out of ourself in love, and if only for a second in that moment we are born again, 
and we get a little foretaste of heaven, a little foretaste of intimacy, a little foretaste of all being well, a foretaste of losing our life in the Trinity. And you know, the reason this matters is because it really is the point of our faith. The goal of Christianity is not primarily to become a nicer person. I hope that happens to you. But it's not the primary goal of Christianity, nor is the primary goal of Christianity to improve the self or even to help society get better until we've all, through our own effort, reached some sort of perfection. But the goal of faith is to lose ourself in love and to be reborn. It's to wake up and to see who we actually are, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High God, and in seeing this, to come alive in a completely new way. The late C.S. Lewis put it like this, this world, he says, is like a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us will one day come to life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And this life, we say, just is the eternal life of the Trinity. And the point of our faith is not to intellectually grasp this life, but for our soul to be grasped by it and for the statue of our fleshy existence to come to, do, to new life as the Spirit of God fills us anew each and every day, and to be reborn in this way, not as a one-time experience, but as a posture of heart that we adopt. This is the only treatment for the disease that ails human beings, that disease that keeps us forever separate and that makes us competitors or enemies or allies who are united in our group against someone who is not our ally. Because at our core, at our core, we are not sick. We're not unpleasant or spiteful, nor are we angels who just need the right conditions if we are to finally blossom. But we're more like statues in need of the breath of God. But the promise of the gospel is that we are being led by the Spirit and that we are all in the process of coming to life. For indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amen.